Welcome to the Tom Nelson Podcast. These are long-form interviews with independent thinkers. Hi, this is Tom Nelson. Today, I am honored to welcome Doug Lightfoot to my podcast. He is the brilliant polymath behind the great YouTube video, Nobody's Fuel. He's been called the Yoda of energy reality, whose account of energy issues is the best researched and best made in the world. When Doug is talking, I am listening. This is a slide I prepared a few years ago, and it's still quite valid. And if you look along the side here, it says it's a natural background radiation. So the amount of radiation that any particular person has depends where they live. Okay. If you look here at the bottom, if you live in San Francisco or the Gulf states, it's 1.2 millisieverts a year. And the world average is 24. Some of the Rocky Mountain states, if you live in Denver, Colorado, you're, you, you have six to 12 millisieverts a year. Okay. Sweden is up to 18. If you go right up here to Ramsar, Iran, it's up to 700 millisieverts a year. And people are just as healthy there as they are to any place else. And I'll just point out that while I'm up here that U.S. nuclear workers have an allowance of 50 millisieverts a year, and they're as healthy as anybody else. Now, when Chernobyl exploded, the, the background radiation was the same as this dashed line. It got up to 1.6 millisieverts above that, and that's when they evacuated everybody. And so you can see that they were overly cautious because they, were, they didn't know what was going on. And, but it was the moving thousands of people out of their houses immediately that caused the problem. That's what caused people the most serious problems. So you can see that there was really no reason to move people except around where the nuclear problem was, right around the nuclear power plant. The radiation was very high around there. 28 people died because of radiation, but these were the first responders who came in and were trying to curtail the radiation and get things under control. And they were exposed to very high levels and that's what killed them. Okay, so you can see that where you live in the world depends how much background radiation you always have. One of the, the accident at Fukushima was, was important. This point here happened about six or eight days after the meltdown. And, and that's about 400 millisieverts. You can see it's well below what we saw at, at Iran. And within a month, it was a way down here. It was down to 60 millisieverts a year. So there was never really any, any bad exposure to nuclear radiation at the Fukushima plant. But what, what did happen was that the media immediately concentrated on the nuclear plant and what was going on there. And they ignored the fact mm -hmm. that 20,000 people had died from the tsunami. Their, their homes were gone, their lives were changed forever. And a whole lot of people were evacuated and there was no need to do so. And so when you look at the human cost of Japan, the earthquake in Tuzami was very expensive. Nobody died from nuclear radiation. Nobody. And that's, that's not, not always made clear. The, the radiation was not a problem. Now, you have to, people have to realize that we are immersed in radiation all around us. 
these are micro-grays. They're 1,000 times less than the sievers we were just talking about, 1,000 okay. times less. So okay. even just sleeping next to someone, you're mm -hmm. getting radiated. And near a nuclear plant, you're getting irradiated 0.09 micrograys. Mm -hmm. okay. Eating one banana is 0.1 micrograys a year. And, and if you live near the Point Lepro nuclear power plant in New Brunswick, you're exposed to one microgray per year. That's the equivalent to eating 10 bananas. So really there's no problem. Now, if you're living near a coal plant 80 kilometers away, you get some radiation because there's a lot of, not a lot, lot but there's some uranium in coal and that's why it, you get some radiation from it. Now, living on the Colorado Plateau, like in Denver, Colorado, each day you get 1.2 micrograys per year. And if you take an airplane flight where you're way, way up in the air, you, you have from New York City to Los Angeles, for example, you have get 40 milligrays, uh, micrograys per year. So, you're, we're immersed in radiation, everything we do. We're also, the medical establishment is using nuclear radiation to very good effect. Now, these are back to milli, milligrays or millisieverts. Yeah. These are the same as on the first slide. They're a thousand times more than what we just saw on the other slide, the previous slide. Okay. Even, you know, even just, just, just getting a dental x-ray, 0.7 millisieverts, and, and radio tracer of your heart, your bladder, CT scans. Many of you have had CT scans. I've had a CT scan, and this gives you 20 to 60 millisieverts a, a, a year. That's, that's you know, the, the, number, the allowance for U.S. nuclear workers is 50. And so you're up into that range. Mm -hmm. Medical uh, establishment is using nuclear very usefully to help people have better health. Very good. Now, these are nuclear fission energy is the safest way to generate large volumes of electricity. This is a, a, a gigawatt year, a billion watts for a whole year from, to, to generate this amount of electricity. And you can see that as we go from liquefied natural gas to hydro, to oil, coal, and you get right down to here at the bottom and nuclear has the smallest number of, of fatalities. A 10th of that of natural gas, almost a 20th of that of, less, of wind, and even a hundred times less than hydro. Now hydro is pretty is pretty safe usually, but occasionally a big dam will fail, and and mm. thousands of people get killed at that time. Okay. So nuclear fission energy is by far the safest way to generate energy. Now, just as we're talking here today, there are fifty nine new nuclear plants under construction. There are what twenty one in 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 China eight in India and four in Turkey. And 18 countries are building new nuclear power plants. And uh, so it, nuclear is not dead. It's alive and well. Good to hear. Now, people are always concerned about the waste from nuclear fuel. And this is because 
the anti-nuclear people have been pushing that there are long-lived waste products in, in the nuclear fuel. Now, this is a nuclear fuel bundle that is in a nuclear fuel reactor. The rods sticking out the end here are the control rods that control the power level. And when, when the uranium is used up in this, it's not completely used up. There's still a little bit left, but it's not generating as much power. So they take this and they put this in a swimming pool till it cools down, till the radioactive decays. And then they take it after a few years in the, in the swimming pool, they put it in this steel cast. This is a steel cast with a little bit of concrete around it. And the long-lived nuclear topes, they're, uh, there's such a small amount of radiation from them that it's easily stopped by a little bit of steel or a little bit of concrete. And you can see here's people walking around these things completely unprotected mm -hmm. because there's no need to do so. The radiation levels are so low, it's not a problem. So storing the spent fuel is not a problem. Then we, ha we, we have to store the nuclear fuel so that we can recover it because the, the uranium that it, that's mined is 0.7% uranium-235, which is the fissile fuel, which is doing all the work and generating all the heat. But the other 99.3% is uranium-238. Now, it's not a, a nuclear fuel in itself, but it can be converted to nuclear fuel, plutonium-239, by hitting it with a lot of, lot of neutrons. And there are uh, ways to do that too. So we need to be able to access the, the spent fuel so we can recover the uranium-238. Okay. Uh, th this is a record of the sunpot, sunspot record from back to 1600s right up to today. This is the Maunder minimum. This is when the Thames River mm -hmm. in England was frozen over and yep. they had all kinds of activities on, on, on the ice and it was very cold and there were crop failures and starvation and it was not a good time to be alive. Now, as we, as we go along here, the yellow parts are where the sun was very strong and it was warm and then it cooled off and, and then it got strong again and it was off, on and off here. And we've just come through a very long warm period and, and we've done very well crop have been good, people have been good, everything's been prosperous. Mm -hmm. But now we're heading into a solar minimum. This is where we are right now in cycle 25. And the expectation is that this will go even lower and we might be into the same kind of situation was at the modern minimum. So if we, if we look at this temperature projection, this, this down here is the the satellite record of the Earth's temperature for 42 years. And you see the temperature has stayed within that range. Mm -hmm. But the carbon dioxide has gone up dramatically during the same period. Now, the carbon dioxide is expected to go on to continue right up to here. Mm -hmm. But where's the temperature going to go? If you, if you look at the last slide that we just saw, mm -hmm. the temperature is going to go down. And that's, that's what this shows. Now, this is, this is the latest, latest point on this satellite temperature curve. It's up here. 
but and right now we've got a lot of in the northern hemisphere there's a lot of lot of uh, high temperatures and in the southern hemisphere there's a lot of very low temperatures mm -hmm. so once that once that switches and we get the winter maybe we're going to be very cold too so anyways there's no no indication that this temperature is going to go up to this emergency level that this ipc is claiming it's it, in, in 2030 they expect it'll be up to about here but in 2030 it's probably going to be down around here somewhere anyways we'll see what's happening but we're in cycle number 25 now and by by another couple of years we'll know whether or not cycle 25 is higher than cycle 24 or whether it's lower and we're heading into this lower part down here okay so it's so it's it's the sun that has control of the earth's temperature that's pretty clear if you look at this the sun the yellow part has control of the earth's temperature and so the the red parts are the cool part okay now th this is real data this is uh, the number of liters of gasoline it's a measure of the carbon dioxide content and this is income per person and you can see the higher your your use of of the high, higher your consumption of gasoline or consumption of co2 is the better off you are in terms of, of income per person. Canada and the US are way up here and these are in, and so some people are saying we've got we've got to lower this. You have to get down this. So what that's going to do is move us all down into this area. We're going to have much less income. We'll be much worse off if we start cutting back on carbon dioxide. Now this is real real stuff. I took this this I made this chart out of real data that I was able to obtain. Mm -hmm. Now, this is what income per person means. It's not just money in your pocket. Mm -hmm. It's clean water and air, safe and abundant food, sanitation, environmental protection. And it goes all the way down through all of these. And the bottom one here is transportation, cars, trucks, trains, ships, mm -hmm. airplanes, roads, and so on. Now, if we start reducing our our consumption of fossil fuels, the first thing that's going to get hit is clean water and air, safe and abundant food. We're going to have food shortages. Mm -hmm. And then pretty soon we won't have fuel for our transportation. So we'll be short of food and transportation. We'll be individuals will be powerless. Mm -hmm. And so we can't afford to have that to happen. We've got to do something to try and stop that particular thing. Now, I think it's interesting to note that uh, all fuels are not created equal. Oil is the most valuable. It's liquid fuels, that, which is make excellent for transportation. It's got a high density. It's very easy to use. You can fly airplanes with, with, with this fuel. You can do all kinds of stuff. It's also the source of plastics. And today, we can't live without plastics. Our, our, our eyeglasses are made of plastics, which are better and safer than, than glass. Petrochemicals of all kinds, pharmaceuticals. Oil is the most valuable of all of the fossil fuels. It's also the key to most transportation. Most transportation is powered, is powered by liquid fuels from oil. The only exception is 
large ships can be powered by nuclear energy. Now, coal is a very valuable commodity. It generates lots of electricity. It's mainly used for generating electricity. It can be converted to liquid fuels and then it can be used to make plastics and petrochemicals, but it's more difficult than from oil. That natural gas is mostly for domestic use in houses, but some is, some is used for generating electricity. One of the big uses of natural gas is to, is to convert the, the CH4 to hydrogen, and then you make ammonia, and that's nitrogen fertilizer. One of the, one of the limitations of agriculture is nitrogen fertilizer. It's one of the things that's helped help us to feed the people of the world. Now, wind and solar, they only generate electricity and only sometimes. Mm -hmm. They're very costly. You may hear a lot of people these days saying wind and solar are the lowest priced, lowest cost energies. And that's only true if you leave out the cost of the backup. Mm -hmm. But wind and solar are of no use unless you have something to back them up when they're not there so you can provide continuous electricity to people. So if you leave out the cost of the necessary backup, then they're less expensive. But if you put in the cost of the essential backup, they're much more expensive. Now, nuclear power generates only electricity, but it's the safest and most reliable way to do so. It powers large ships. The US Navy is powered by, by nuclear power. And, and so, so is some of the Russian ships too. Now, biomass gets small and some competes with wood. Now, bi biomass was the original fuel. Wood was the original fuel. And it still is used in some times, but it's small and it, as they it competes with food. Now, this is a, this is a cost of, of electricity globally. Uh, countries like Australia that have gone very heavily into wind and the UK, uh, UK and Denmark and Germany have got very high electricity costs. Okay. Now in Australia right now, it's winter time and the Australians are having blackouts because when the weather gets very cold, there's often very little wind and there's no, <laughs> no wind energy. Okay. So they're having blackouts. They're even saying, don't, don't charge your electric car, mm -hmm. save the electricity. And, and the UK now has started up some coal-fired power plants just to keep the lights on because okay, they've had so much wind. And then Denmark, of course, is okay because it's got a direct cable to Norway, which has lots of hydro. And Germany is in an, in an awful state right now. They've, they're, they're very heavily into wind and solar, and uh, they've, begun to, they've been relying heavily on Russia for natural gas, and Russia's cutting that off, so, so they're in trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, wind energy is a very expensive thing, and you can see that. There, there are, I've seen other charts, too, where it shows the more wind energy, the higher the cost of electricity. Mm -hmm. There are some, this is, uh, this is carbon dioxide gas of life. With no carbon dioxide, there'd be no plants, and plants are at the bottom of the food chain for every single living thing. Everything depends on plants for food. Now, there are geologists who are concerned about 
the level of carbon dioxide has got very low right now when we go into the into the ice ages the, the level of carbon dioxide drops down to 180 parts per million at 150 parts per million plants can't grow they die okay so during the ice ages we come very close to this red line of death as they call it but but with by burning fossil fuels we've been able to raise it up to where it is today and then that that's going to help and plants plants have liked that because uh, we've had greening of the earth i mean agriculture production is up anywhere between 15 and 20 percent because of the increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and so and and some people are trying saying oh we got to get rid of carbon dioxide we got to uh, sequester it we got to put it away where it can never never be we need to put it away where it'll never again be in the atmosphere but that's hurting plants and plants are what are what keep us alive so this is another reason why we shouldn't be reducing carbon dioxide levels. I did have one follow-up question that people will ask about nuclear. What do you say about the possibility of military attack on nuclear plants? Do you think that is a problem that we need to worry about in terms uh, of danger? Uh, yeah. Military attack on nuclear plants. Now, if it's nuclear power plants in the United States, they're, they're all hard. They have a hard concrete shell around them. Okay. You can right. fly an airplane into them and nothing's going to happen. Okay. And they've actually right. done that. Okay. okay. So yeah. if it's in the U.S., it's not a problem. Now, if, if you're in Russia, for example, or some of the, the, the Russian VVER models, okay. and I've, I visit, actually visited one of those in Slovakia, okay. they don't have that hard thing around them. So, so people could get to the reactor and, and, and blow it up. But now you can see that even if you melted all the fuel, like happened at Fukushima, mm -hmm. that the fuel melted out the bottom of the reactor and end up at the bottom, there, there was not enough radiation to be a long-term problem. Okay. Yeah. So if you were to break up a, a VVER model of, of the Soviet nuclear power plants, you'd get some radiation, but it wouldn't be at a very high level. The thing you have to remember is that it's not possible to have a nuclear explosion in a nuclear power plant. Okay. It, it's not possible. And the reason that it, it's not possible is because the concentration of uranium is not high enough it's only maybe up to 5%. And to get an explosion, a nuclear explosion, you need well over 90%. So it's a long way from ever having a nuclear explosion. But you can get nuclear radiation, but it won't ever be a high enough level to last for very long. What other advice do you have for people then? We want our kids and our grandchildren to flourish in this world and have abundant supplies of energy. Do you think then going into nuclear is very important, nuclear energy? Yes. Uh, I worked with my son, Brian, and we okay. wrote a DVD in 2006. Yeah. It's a DVD. It's over two hours long, but it's okay. got a lot of really good stuff in mm -hmm. it. It ends up with a, an energy supply plant. Okay. And the energy supply plan basically says 
generate all electricity by nuclear energy or, or hydro, and then sa save all of the coal, oil, and natural gas for liquid fuels, for road okay. and air and off-road transport. Now, mm -hmm. the off-road transport is for the farmer who grows your food. Yes. So you need, you, so you need that. Now, save them, save them for that. Now, now if, we, if, we, uh, if we do that, we probably have maybe up to a century of oil to find a solution. Okay. Now, it, finding replacements for fossil fuels is extremely difficult, mm -hmm. very difficult. Yeah. And there's nothing on the horizon. There's nothing in sight. You can't even say, well, if we did so-and-so, maybe. Okay. What, what we might be able to do in the long term is make hydrogen by a high temperature splitting process where you, you use nuclear energy mm -hmm. to generate the temperature and get a high temperature splitting process and you end up with hydrogen and oxygen. You could then take the hydrogen and react it with carbon dioxide and you can get lots of carbon dioxide by heating up a limestone, for example. Okay. And you could make liquid fuels which we could use for specialized things like flying airplanes. So do we have enough nuclear fuel on earth then to last us for many centuries or is there any limit to that supply if we were to run on nukes for centuries? We've got enough uranium to last yeah. us for tens of thousands of okay. years. There's 450 billion tons of it in the oceans. Okay. okay? And we know how to get that out. The Japanese have developed some methods where they can put some, some materials in the ocean. And as the ocean flows, flows by, the uranium is captured. Okay. And so we, we can get this stuff out. So we got enough for that. And then if the uranium price at $80 a kilogram, there we have, have a certain amount of, of it. I've talked with the geologists and they say, Yes, if the price went up to, if the price doubled, there'd be more than 10 times as much available. Commercially. Oh, okay. Okay. okay? Yeah. And even if, even if it cost $8,000 a kilogram, then you could, you, you'd be digging uranium out of your backyard, probably. <laughs> okay. All okay? right. There's lots and lots of uranium. Right. Now, after that, there's thorium. Now, thorium. Uh, thorium is not a uh, fissile material. Thorium is not a nuclear fuel. Thorium has to be converted into a nuclear fuel. It's converted into uranium-133. Mm -hmm. If you hit it with enough neutrons, it can, it can be made into uranium-133, which, which is a good fuel, nuclear fuel. It's a good bomb-making material too, but okay. it's a good fuel, okay? And so when we talk about thorium reactors, uh, thorium reactors are really a form of a fast breeder reactor once they get started. But to get a thorium reactor started, you have to have uranium-235 to provide the neutrons to change okay. the thorium into your U-238, which will then fist it and get enough neutrons to keep the thing going. And that's Thorium reactors are, the molten salt thor thorium reactors are a long way off. Okay. Uh, the Chinese are probably doing as much work as anybody on them. And they, they're, they're saying it's still a long way off because they're just, 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 just starting to work on it. Okay.
I've had some experience with molten salts and the molten salts they're using in a molten salt reactor are very, very gross. I, 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 no, I have yet to see what the materials of construction are. Nobody speaks about it. And I'm sure they don't speak about it because it's, it's probably very expensive and very exotic. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, and, and, but I do know that he was working on one of these things and they were, they were saying, oh, we're watching for the cracks. Well, oh. when you're watching for the cracks, then you're, you're, not in, yeah. you're not in very good shape. Okay. All right. One other question is a lot of politicians seem like they are looking at a world in the future where we're running everything on wind turbines and solar panels. Now, I think that is not going to happen, but I just wanted you to, do you think that is ever going to happen? Well, you have to remember that, that wind and solar only produce electricity. You can't, yes. fly electri- you can't fly airplanes on electricity. You can't large cargo ships. You can't run on electricity. You can run the large cargo ships on nuclear energy, mm-hmm. but you can't fly airplanes with nuclear energy because you need too much shielding around the nuclear reactors and it's just mm-hmm. too heavy. Okay. So never be that. So, so when and when you look at the amount of wind and solar energy, there, the best places for wind are very far from where people live. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, solar, solar energy is good in some places. The best use of solar energy is to, is to heat hot water. When we were in Turkey, there were hot water heaters over. Everybody had one on their house or the apartment, whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's good because you heat the water and you can store it. It's the, the storage is the key part to making hot water heating work. Okay. But, but for, for trying to run the world on electricity from solar, I mean, it's, it, 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 it's a fool's error, to put it bluntly. Okay. I do hear hopes, though, of using wind power to somehow to make hydrogen power or to store up the wind power somehow in super duper batteries, but I don't think that's viable. Do you? Well, yes. I, I studied a project that a, the person had, had a few years ago about using wind energy to provide electricity to electronic cells to make hydrogen. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's a real problem. Okay. Because the wind energy goes from zero to maximum, and, and mm-hmm. it's about 30% on the average. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so how many electrolytic cells are you going to have? Enough to take, take care of the full capacity, okay. yeah. up to 30%, mm-hmm. and, a half, and you're getting rid of this surplus mm-hmm. electricity. Yes. Okay. What are you doing? I, I don't know enough about hydrogen cells. I know a fair bit about them, but mm-hmm. I don't know how sensitive they are to, to temperature of operation. Okay. I worked in a chlorine cell plant and the chlorine cells were, are, are sensitive to temperature. So you have to, and they work better if the, if the electricity is constant okay. at a certain level. Yeah. Probably the same is true for hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Now you can't just you can't just increase the capacity of a, a hydrogen electrolytic cell by increasing the current density, because if you do that, then the, the resistance goes away up, and you start boiling off water okay. instead of making hydrogen. Okay. So you're limited by the current density. So if you want more hydrogen, twice as much hydrogen, you need twice as many cells. 
it's not like the splittings process. If you use a splitting process, you want twice as much. Mm -hmm. You build twice as big a plant. It doesn't cost twice as much because of the process. Okay. So, no, it, it, there won't be hydrogen made from wind or solar on a large scale. Thanks for listening to the Tom Nelson Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe.